does. He's a he's a better guy in the rock, and he's he's missing his his lovely mustache. I love that stash. I'm as proud as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you about what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. All right, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, this week, uh, because we have Alien Covenant coming out, um, we did something a little bit different because we've done a bunch of the Alien movies before on the show. We're going to look at, like, kind of. Uh, another kind of unknown area and we're looking at the sea so we're taking a look at sci-fi classic the abyss and to do that i'm really excited about the guests we have this week we have anya novak who's one of my favorite uh film writers out there so anya thanks for being here on the show hello thank you for having me yes of course so um i've already said you're one of my favorite writers but if people want to read your stuff i mean you're kind of everywhere you're on a bunch of sites but what's the best way to find your work I kind of get around. Um, <laughs> I'll write about the genre wherever they'll let me do so. But I have a weekly column over at Daily Grindhouse called Doing the Nasties, in which uh, I watch each of the 72 films on the list of video nasties that were banned from distribution in the UK during the 1980s. Um, you can also find my work at Birth, Movies, Death, F This Movie, and uh, Diabolique Magazine. But um, I have a website, and that's AnyaWrites.com. And that's where all my work is concentrated there. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think I first became aware of you through Twitter, of course. I think I saw your article on Get Out posted, I think, on VagueVisages.com. Uh, and it was just this – it's a really I, – I just urge anyone who's seen Get Out, uh, if you haven't seen it, go watch it because it's probably one of the best movies of the year so far. But there's a really interesting article written by you that talks about kind of the symbolism of the of the deer or the buck antlers uh, and everything that kind of goes into that in the movie. So I just wanted to kind of let people know about that article. And then, of course, go to Anya Rights and uh, check out the rest of her stuff because there's a lot of lot of great stuff there. Yes. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Bookish Plinko. Bookish as in someone who likes reading books. And Plinko is in that old school coin drop game on The Price is Right. Nice. Perfect. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking when I made that name. But <laughs> and now you're yeah, stuck, stuck with it. Like, like yeah, uh, I'm too known. Now I can't get rid of this and start over. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So before I talk about the psychology, and by the way, the theme of this episode is going to be sexism in the workplace, which uh, particularly focused on sexism in male dominated industries, like in this case, this kind of underwater rig. Uh, but f before we get to that psychology, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I do. Uh, the first movie that I wanted to recommend is kind of mainstream. It's a little vanilla. Everybody's seen it. And that would be Silence of the Lambs because, uh, you know, that, that deals exactly with that theme, sexism in the workplace. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Dominated profession. Uh, Clarice Starling is uh, a young FBI agent in training, and they have several uh, specific scenes where, where they make it very clear that she is out of her element in a sense. She's resented just for uh, her presence among these men. 
Yeah, that's a but great it, choice. I mean, I, I remember seeing a picture very recently posted because probably because of Jonathan Demme's recent death. There's the shot of her in the elevator with all these like looming male figures. And I thought like, what a great. Yeah. That's it. That's the one that made me think of this, uh, this film in particular. And then nice. it, 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 the sexism is kind of in the periphery of the actual story, which is why I kind of wanted to recommend it. Cause that, that's the way it is with the abyss too. I mean, yeah. it, it's not specifically about the sexism, but it, right. that that's definitely an element in the story. Right. And then the, uh, the second film I chose was American Mary, which is a 2012 uh, Canadian film done by the Soska sisters, Jen and Sylvia Soska, and it's a, a body horror film. Okay. Starring Catherine Isabel. The title character, Mary, is an aspiring med student who faces sexism from her mentor and the men in her field. One day, her mentor invites her to, to a get-together, that, that's what he calls it, where it, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a weird sex party thing where he drugs and rapes her. And she considers quitting the surgical professional altogether, but she goes a different route instead. And that's where the horror comes in. And she sort of pursues her own forms of vengeance in the process. And uh, that one deals heavily with sexism in the workplace. And it's that sexism is something of a catalyst for the main character herself. Okay, nice. Yeah, definitely. Those choices definitely run the gamut. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. everyone has seen Silence of the Lambs. And American Mary, like this is the first time I've ever heard it mentioned anywhere, not just on the show. So I always I always like that when people recommend movies I've never – I don't know anything about and I can just kind of walk in and check out something totally new. So American Mary, okay, that's that's, that's going on the list. Very feminist friendly too. Nice. All right. Great. All right. So we are going to take a little break. I will talk about Sex of in the Workplace and then we'll bring Anya back to talk about The Abyss. Hey people, my name is Peter and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is I may review movies I grew up watching or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So we're talking about sexism broadly and sexism in the workplace, specifically in male-dominated professions. So Sexism, also called gender discrimination, is a prejudice or discrimination based on a person's sex or gender. If you look at just that definition, you would say, like, men can experience sexism too. Men can experience gender discrimination, but not sexism, because sexism is is more of a systemic issue. So only women, or actually, let's say, only non-men can experience sexism on that level. So one of the things sexism leads to is gender stereotypes. So gender stereotyping is widely held beliefs about the characteristics and behaviors of women and men. There have been many empirical studies that have found widely shared beliefs that men are more valued socially and even more competent than women in many activities. So in 2008, um, some researchers hypothesized that the salience of ability versus other components of gender stereotypes as far as math will impact women pursuing math. And through their experiment, which which basically what it did was compare just math outcomes of women under two different situations, which are the ability of math and the effort on math, respectively. 
And what they found was that in women, their performance was more likely to be affected by negative ability stereotypes, which is influenced by the cultural beliefs, not so much the effort component. So as a result of this experiment and these beliefs held in the United States, the, the researchers concluded that individual academic outcomes can be affected by these stereotypes that is influenced by these beliefs. And if you and you can move that even further. So if it's going to affect how you do academically, academics are going to affect what career you have and your earning potential and your livelihood and your personal satisfaction and happiness. So this can affect everything. So there's lots of sexism in language too. So sexism in language is just when language devalues members of a gender. Sexist language tends to promote male superiority. So this can affect lots of things like your perception of your reality, um, how you take in cultural meanings and how you're socialized to do and enjoy certain things. So really what this is about, and you can you can talk about this with race, with gender, with sexuality, but in this case, of course, it's gender. And basically what it's showing is male as norm. So that may not seem super harmful at first glance, but if you're constantly thinking someone who is good or someone who is normal, you think of a man, then women and other non-men are at a distinct disadvantage as far as success. So what are examples of this? So if you have a group of people that are all kinds of genders, not just men, and you immediately call them men, that can end up being harmful. Things like mankind, man referring to humanity, you guys, or you know this group of men when it's really not can actually uh, can actually hurt the people involved because they are not being counted. And also things like using masculine pronouns when you don't know if the person is male, female, or some other gender. And even things as simple as the ordering of words and phrases like man and wife. And again, all these things by themselves in in one one example are not terribly harmful. But when it's constant, when the male is norm happens all the time, this this does have an effect on how we view men, how we view women, how we view people on the gender spectrum that aren't just men and women. Okay, so now we move to occupational sexism, which is really what this episode is about more than anything else. So this is just discriminatory practices or actions based on a person's gender that occur in the workplace. One really known form of this is wage discrimination. So in 2008, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development found that white women, their employment rates have expanded and gender employment and wage gaps have narrowed nearly everywhere. But on average, women still have 20% less chance to have a job and are paid 17% less than men. And of course, these gaps get even bigger when you're talking about when you're talking about women of color instead of white women. Okay, so as far as hiring, there's a 2014 study by Williams and Cece that basically said that women are preferred two to one over identically qualified male applicants in academic hiring. However, those results got met with a lot of skepticism from other research because it contradicts basically every other study on the issue. And this is where we run into problems with psychological studies. It can be really hard to duplicate and recreate the same results, which is why as a science, it, you know, it, it's much, much more difficult uh, than something where you can really, you can really take a look at something and duplicate these, these results really often and really well. Now, there's also the earnings gap. Many studies have shown that on average, women earn lower wages than men worldwide. Some people argue that this is gender discrimination in the workplace. 
Others argue that the wage gap is a result of different choices by men and women, such as women placing more value than men on having children and men being more likely than women to choose careers in high-paying fields like business, engineering, and technology. And this is where I call bullshit. Uh, One, because uh, women are no more likely to choose having children over men. But many places of business, your job is at risk if you become pregnant. And if a couple becomes pregnant, the woman is carrying the baby, so she is the one who's going to lose her job, not the men. Also, earlier we talked about this study about mathematics and about how women are less likely to to do well in these courses because of the cultural stereotypes. And now you're going to turn around and tell me that like, oh, well, women just don't want to be in these high-paying fields like engineering and technology. And what do engineering and technology have in common? Oh, yeah, mathematics is involved in both of them heavily. So the culture that we've created has created an earnings gap, even if men and women were paid exactly equal, which would be great, which they're not, there would still be this gap because we have put forward this idea that women are good at math and this is men's work versus women's work. So you can't sit around and say like, oh, it's women's choice because their choices are affected by the culture in which they live. And then there's also the glass ceiling effect. So glass ceiling is basically the idea that regardless of how many women are in the work, in the workplace and the workforce, they tend to account for not very much of the top levels, like the CEOs and top executives. For instance, there's a study that has shown in the United States, women account for 52% of the overall labor force, which makes sense. They they account for about 51 to 53% of the population. So that evens up, but they make up 3% of corporate CEOs and top executives. That is crazy to me. Like, I mean, if you want to if you want to deny earnings gaps and all kinds of things, I can listen. I probably still won't buy it. You want to deny the glass ceiling effect. You're really fighting an uphill battle like women are every day in the workforce. So some researchers see the root cause of this is this discrimination based on gender that's conducted by current top executives and corporate directors who are almost all male. Ninety seven percent are male. Now, there are studies that show that progress in bringing women into leadership and decision-making positions around the world uh, is happening, but it's far too slow. And I think that 3% number really shows that it is far too slow and that we do have this discrimination not only in getting a job, but in moving forward in a job. Okay, so another thing that Anya and I will talk about during the, the discussion of the movie is something called benevolent sexism, and that's also termed ambivalent sexism. So basically, the ambivalent sexism is part of a framework that shows sexism has two components, hostile sexism and benevolent sexism. Hostile sexism is the, is like really overt, really negative evaluations and stereotypes about gender. Like women aren't smart, they're incompetent, they're inferior to men, like the really, really strong sexist statements. Benevolent sexism, on the other hand, has these evaluations of gender that subjectively can, can appear positive but are actually damaging to the people who they're saying it about and gender equality more broadly. And this is the idea that women need to be protected by men in terms of endearment, especially in a professional environment, calling someone sweetie, honey, darling, little lady, all those kinds of things uh, could be seen as terms of endearment. But really what it's doing is showing like you are weaker than me and I need to take care of you. And here's what we find about men who are ambivalently sexist. So when we compare men who are sexist in a hostile way versus those in the quote-unquote benevolent way, what do we find? So so men who are both, who have hostile and benevolent sexism, they're more likely to tolerate the sexual harassment of women than men who are just 
benevolently sexist. Overall, hostile sexism is associated with acceptance of sexual harassment. Adding to that, the endorsement of hostile sexism is related to attitudes about intimate partner violence uh, perpetrated by men towards women such that people that are high in hostile sexism are more tolerant of intimate partner violence. Now, benevolent sexist attitudes are not found to be a significant predictor of tolerance of intimate partner violence. However, the endorsement of benevolent sexism is not protective either. So it's not as if like, oh, they, they only endorse benevolent sexism, so they're going to be against intimate partner violence. They're just not going to support it, which is not honestly that much better. And lastly, men who are high in hostile sexism are more likely to rape women, whereas men that are high in benevolent sexism are more likely to blame a victim of rape for the attack. And this is a part of rape culture. Benevolent sexism and rape culture are closely tied together. So we also find these sexist attitudes uh, will relate to preferences in romantic partners. The evidence out there suggests that women with higher levels of benevolent sexism have more stereotypical preferences in men as romantic partners, like financial security and resources. Men with these high levels of hostile sexism are more likely to value physical attractiveness. Benevolent sexism tends to predict mate selection, where hostile sexism will predict subsequent marriage norms after pairing. And another thing that both benevolent sexists and hostile sexists are associated with is the belief that premarital sex is unacceptable for women. So none of this is really surprising, honestly. So now we move to benevolent sexism and women in the workplace. So obviously the consequences of hostile sexism are really obvious. If we see women as less than, we're not going to hire them and we're certainly not, not going to promote them. But now we find that actually benevolent sexism has can have a more severe impact on a woman's cognitive performance. Research suggests that hostile sexism will elicit anger at the target, which can increase motivation to succeed or perform. So if someone is being sexist in a hostile way towards a woman, she may take that as motivation and you know have this moment of, I'm going to show them, I'm going to be the best I can be, and I'm going to beat them out which kind of makes sense, even if it is kind of messed up. On the other hand, benevolent sexism, because of the seemingly positive nature of it, can actually hinder a woman's confidence and performance. This research shows that in a typical team working environment, hostile as well as benevolent sexism has consequences for performance. Previous research has shown that benevolent sexism has detrimental effects on women's performance evaluation if that woman violates social norms associated with these sexist attitudes. Additionally, studies have also shown that benevolent sexist attitudes lead to lower professional evaluations from men and women. So using an experimental design, two researchers named Masser and Abrams in 2004 found that people with hostile sexist attitudes rated women lower when applying for a male-dominant position. Not a surprise. But additionally, high hostile sexist individuals recommend men to fill the available positions more often than women. So this is, again, something that leads to the glass ceiling effect. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. So we will talk more about sexism in the workplace and benevolent sexism and all those happy topics when we bring back Anya Novak to talk about the abyss. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, 
your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right. So we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie. So as always, we're going to start with kind of our history uh, with with this movie. So for me, this came out, I think, in 1989. So I was about 10 years old. So I probably saw this in the theater or very soon after that on video. But I don't think I've seen this for a couple decades. Like, it's it's one of those movies, I think I was, when we did an episode on uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I put this in the same box because it's one of those movies that I own uh, and then just never quite feel like, oh, I should watch that right now. But then when I finally do, I'm like, why haven't I watched this? This is great. This is fantastic. <laughs> Late 80s, early 90s science fiction. And I really had a good time with it. And it's a movie that I've always liked. And even though it seems like it's become weirdly popular, especially on social media these days to kind of hate on old James Cameron movies for some reason, um, this this is fantastic. Like, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it's kind of led me down a path of watching other James Cameron movies uh, lately. So, so I had a great time with it. What about you? What's your history with The Abyss? Uh, I'd seen it sometime when I was a kid. I definitely remember my parents uh, either renting or having the VHS copy when I was little. And uh, I had only seen it in bits and pieces because it wasn't really a movie for me to watch at the time. Right. And I didn't see it in its entirety that I remember until I was an adult. And I was just blown away by it. I saw a director's cut of it. And I thought, well, how has no one told me about this? How is this not a more famous movie? You know, it should be right up there with the Terminator 2 and, and you know, all of James Cameron's other works. But for some reason, most people didn't talk about it until, like you said recently, in social media, it, there was a lot of people. I just posted about it last night as I was rewatching it that, uh, man, I love this movie. And a whole bunch of people came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, it's one of his greatest. Why don't more people talk about it? Right. So I, I think you're right that it, it's, kind of, it's gained a cult following in, in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Why, do you have any opinion on like maybe why that is that this isn't as highly thought of? Is is it because like it didn't become part of a series of sequels? Like if you look at the Terminator franchise, it's of course like Terminator 2 is probably its height, uh, but it's gotten really big as far as people knowing about it. Same thing um with the the alien and aliens franchise like it's you know and this is kind of its own its own little thing and avatar you know of course hasn't become a franchise yet but the, he keeps he keeps uh, tormenting people telling them there's going to be three more um but why do you think this movie hasn't like latched on to that kind of cultural consciousness i think maybe at the time uh it was difficult to kind of get it going because uh, from what I saw, I watched an interview with James Cameron, and the movie barely made its money back at all. It oh, really? It was kind of pop in that sense. Um, and also, the uh, the cast members, apparently the filming process was really, really grueling. Well, and, didn't Ed um, Harris almost die? Like, didn't yeah, he, like, oh, yeah he almost drowned. Oh, he ended up Jesus. punching James Cameron in the face. There was a whole thing. <laughs> and... Um, 
for years, he wouldn't even talk about it. He, he didn't even want to hear it mentioned. He wouldn't address it all in interviews. He acted like it never happened. Like what now? Nope. I, I, right. I remember that. And several, several of the cast members, uh, except for like Michael Bean, um, had said, we're never doing a sequel. We're never, we're never doing this again. <laughs> Ed Harris almost never, I don't, I don't know if he ever worked with James Cameron again, but I, I know that they, they were at each other's throats um, because of this movie. And so uh, I could see how it kind of just got lost in the shuffle. And then with Terminator 2 coming out and, and right. all that other stuff, it just, it just moved on. They moved on. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about James Cameron a little bit. Let's, I mean, let's talk about him in general, but also his specific directorial choices here. Like I think, I think looking back on James Cameron's career is really, really interesting. I think uh, I think he can be saddled with some of the same critiques that I've heard about Christopher Nolan that I don't necessarily agree with. This idea that he uh, he doesn't access kind of the humanity of his characters and it's more about the spectacle and the event. And I think James Cameron does really love the spectacle. I mean, if you want to look at Terminator 2, if you want to look at Titanic, Avatar, even The Abyss, which is pretty effects heavy. But I feel like in this movie in particular, I think I think especially the relationship between between Bud and Lindsay, our two main characters, I think he really draws on that a lot. And I think it's what really makes this memorable aside from the special effects. Right. I, I agree. He, the crew and the, the rapport between them and the fact that they are there's something of a family. Um, it drives a lot of the story. <laughs> And uh, a lot of its greatest scenes aren't scenes of spectacle. They're, they're scenes of, of uh, emotion between, usually between Bud and Lindsay. Uh, two of my favorite scenes anyway. <laughs> and um, yeah, some of the best scenes are, are, are drawn on the, 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 the heart of the characters and not necessarily on the great effects. So I think, yeah, this is kind of an outlier in in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you don't talk about Bud and Lindsay, like even like these moments of camaraderie between the crew and how they kind of band I, together throughout the entire film in, in many different ways, I think it's really what makes this, you know, a, a quality film more than more than all the kind of tricks of the trade. Right, exactly. But speaking of those tricks of the trade, like we have, to, we can't talk about this movie and not talk about the underwater sequences. Like they're absolutely stunning. Like even for, I mean, how many years ago was this now? Like almost 30 years ago, like those underwater sequences to me still really work and they're still awe inspiring. And even the, you know, of course there's always going to be moments in movies as old as this, when you have, anytime you have kind of moving vehicles in space or in water, there's going to be some moments that kind of stand out maybe as not holding up. But I think all the moments underwater, even with the submarine in the very beginning, that stuff still really works for me. It does. And uh, I think that Cameron had claimed that it was a movie full of firsts, uh, uh, technically. Um, the, even though, um, the movie barely made its money back. They did a lot of a lot of new stuff that was groundbreaking with CGI, and it was done by Lucas's uh, George Lucas's ILM, the Industrial mm -hmm. Light and Magic. They did it, and uh, those animated water effects uh, used in the movie were later used on the liquid T one thousand in Terminator Two: Judgment Day. Oh, there you so, go. So, yeah, a lot of it was was uh, uh, praised at the time, and actually, wrote that down. They did get the uh, Oscar in 1990 for vi visual effects for and, this movie. And well-deserved. I mean, it, it absolutely is. works. 
I think there's another choice though that he makes that that really solidifies that stuff. You talked about like the most memorable scenes are kind of on board the rig, not necessarily, you know, the hurricane sequence or the the underwater animation, but I love the fact that there's this constant blue hue even inside of the rig. And what I think it allows you to do is to never forget where you are. Like it would be very easy to feel like, oh, this is just a set. There's no real stakes here. It's fine. But given that kind of blue light that's constantly coming in and only interrupted when things go really wrong and there's red lights and then water rushing in. But beside that, during the whole film, the whole thing like almost has like a blue filter on it, which I think is a really interesting and cool decision. That sounds cool. It's like a like a subliminal hue kind of. Right. I like that. Yeah. I, I hadn't noticed that myself. I'm kind of I'm glad you pointed that out. That's pretty cool. Nice. I think the thing that surprised me, there's a scene where they, you know, of course, go into the submarine and you have all these kind of dead bodies kind of floating around. And I was ex- actually expecting that to be more jarring and more gross given, you know, who the filmmaker is. I mean, if you look at stuff he did, you know, earlier and later in his career, sometimes he really does go for those jump scare moments and those kind of gross out moments. And there's really none of that here. It's almost this weird peaceful moment despite the fact of what we're seeing yeah you know there was a moment in that movie um with with a dead body that had crabs crawling out of its mouth right and um that moment i I remember thinking it could have been more jarring but that wasn't a bad thing i was thinking specifically of that that bit in Jaws, that jump scare in Jaws with the head that pops out. You know, I have seen that movie probably 50 times, and that moment gets me every every single time. Like, I'm ready for it, and still, like, it's something to do with the visual and the music cue that happens in that moment, and I'm just like, nope, cannot deal with this. (laughs) It's not okay. 30 years old, every time I still jump. Yeah. Um, The other thing uh, that this movie does, and this is kind of partially writing, partially directing, but you have all these sequences of them, you know, kind of swimming with gear. So they're kind of constantly protected from the elements. And there's a moment later in the film where Bud has to swim without gear, like kind of through open water. And I think it sets up these really this interesting level of stakes and risk because you don't realize how protected they are until all of a sudden you see, you know, skinny Ed Harris like swimming through this open water. (laughs) to kind of escape a situation and I thought like what a nice little moment there that you don't even really realize is happening that these characters are protected by the rig by their suits by all these things so when they're out in kind of open water and kind of dealing with the elements without it really does for half a second kind of jar you and scare you like oh we are really vulnerable right now and you know he that was another thing that Cameron was good at was knowing how to turn the tone of the film on a dime like that when uh, near the end of the movie, when Virgil is talking to those those creatures, he's communicating with them in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we go from awe to terror at that tidal wave to awe again to mm-hmm. shame at the images of humanity's self destruction to hear this this sort of heartfelt empathy for Virgil's love for Lindsay, and then to relief again as the creatures kind of ease up. And this is all in like a ten minute span, nine minute span, right? And I think in the hands of a lesser director like this, this could it just fails like it'll it'll take you out of the story. It won't make any sense. And I think Cameron is one of those directors for better or worse, whether you like his movies or not. They have his imprint on it like he has total and complete control of his films. And and you could really see it here. And I really think like, you know. I think he gets a lot of credit for things like Terminator 2 and things like Aliens, and I love both of those movies, but this is 
I mean, in terms of direction, like this is masterful work. Like I, I was really struck by this at the amount of control he had over this movie and how well it works considering, as you mentioned, all that kind of flip-flopping of emotion. And we'll talk about later with writing, but there's like seven plots in this movie, but yet they still <laughs> all kind of make sense and they're paced really well. Definitely. It, it's got his signature on it and he seems confident in this movie, even though it's one of his earlier movies. Yeah. And that's surprising. Like, I think if you had, you know, watched these movies out of order, you might think this is later James Cameron because he is so kind of aware. And also, I think it helps that he's not beholden to we talked about the idea of these other movies being part of, you know, ser series of sequels. And it's nice that he gets to do a movie here that's not beholden to prior films, even in there. It's his own films like he's got all these rules kind of working against him in the Terminator and Alien franchises. And here he can kind of do whatever he wants. And it shows and it looks like he's having a good time. Yeah, yeah. He came up with the story in high school, as I read. Um, and uh, it was from reading some article about uh, that that oxygenated water that pink water that you breathe mm -hmm. in. That's a real thing, apparently. Oh, and at, nice. at the time it was. In fact, the rat, that the, that scene where they, they kind of mm -hmm. drown the rat in the water, that was a real rat with the real oxygenated water. And uh, they just kept cutting to the humans' faces and reactions at the time because they didn't <laughs> show the rat defecating in the water. Because, <laughs> I mean, if, if you were breathing in that stuff, even though you know what's going on, you'd probably you'd probably freak out a little bit, too. And that's what the rat does. And so they right. had to keep cutting away. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that that was all James Cameron's. Uh, this movie is his baby. It seems it seems like it's kind of a passion project for him. Right. It's nice to know that like rats and Ed Harris are on the same level for James Cameron. Like, I'll just yeah. drown anybody. It's fine. As long as it looks good in the movie, we're going to make this work. God, that's and you know, you know, the, the, the end result, the end, I guess the ends kind of justify the means there because I, I, I was happy with it. Yeah, maybe not for Ed Harris, but for us. Like, yeah, like, not so much. The ends justify the means. All right, so let's talk about the acting in this movie. So let's start with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, um, who is one of those actresses that as I look back and see her in movies, I just keep wondering, like, why wasn't she in more? Like, I think she's pretty phenomenal here. And does a really good job of towing an interesting line because we're going to talk about sexism later, but especially in the late 80s, early 90s, it's not easy to write a script and find an actress who can play this role and be kind of the head woman in charge and still be completely likable. And I think she really she really embodies that in this movie. Right. It's so easy for um, for a performance to turn someone from a capable, confident woman into the the ice queen stereotype. Right. And, and I think uh, they play with that. I mean, she calls herself a cast iron bitch in this right. movie. So, yeah. But it's still kind of a tongue in cheek thing. And yes. so it, it could have easily it could have easily gone horribly and she could have been a hated character. But for the most part, she was she was widely loved, except for, you know, uh, Michael Bean's character. He didn't care for her too much, but I don't think he liked that. anybody. I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think it's really interesting because the beginning of the movie, if it's one of those movies, if you take the beginning of the movie with her relationship towards Ed Harris and then watch nothing in the middle and watch the end. You'd be like, okay, this cannot make sense. 
There's no way right. these two characters can get that close in two to two and a half hours. It's just not going to happen. But the arc of these characters and their relationship, it's interesting because there's obviously there's a past there that we're not totally privy to. But I think Cameron also does a great job of kind of showing, not telling the past of that relationship, but still having us understand it and having them get to a point where they care about and love one another again. And it's just kind of incredible to watch these two actors work together with this with this incredible direction. Right. The the arc is complete for for so many of, of these these main characters. And it's kind of rare to speak, see, especially with female characters. And so I, I, I'm pretty appreciative of that on, on James Cameron's part. Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch this again, because, you know, like I said, the last time I watched it, I was probably 10, 12, maximum 15 years old. And let's just say uh, in terms of gender politics, I was not as insightful as I am now when I was like, you know, a sophomore in high school. So to me, like I, you know, really, I really identified with the Ed Harris character more when I first watched it. But when watching it again, I was firmly on the side in the beginning of this movie with the Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio role. So it's really interesting to watch this like a couple decades apart because it really, I think there are people you can connect to in this movie, no matter who you are, no matter what your history is. Right. The characters are distinct enough to where there is there's someone for everyone. Right. Even if you just really like rats, there's there's a character for you. <laughs> there's there's someone. But what did you think of Ed Harris's performance here? Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. And um, I've what actually both of my favorite scenes in the film, again, uh, involve Ed Harris. Uh, just he, he just completely goes for it. And I, I think he's gotten a reputation for that, for, for kind of getting really intense with his performance. I don't know if he counts as a method actor, but he's very intense in his performances. And when you watch these behind-the-scenes videos of, of, of him in the moment and, and doing take after take, he doesn't really turn it off when the camera turns off. Right. He, he keeps, keeps going with it. And um, I think that shows in his performances, especially in uh, uh, the scene where he tries to resuscitate Lindsay after she has drowned. Yeah. Um, he, he gets so into it that his voice actually breaks uh, when he's telling her to fight. Right. I always wait for that. I always, it, it still gives me goosebumps whenever I see it. Yeah. Um, and that's... I think that in- intensity was great for this particular role. God damn it. Breathe. God damn you bitch! You never backed away from anything in your life! Now fight! 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 Right now! Do it! Fight! God damn it! Fight! 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 Yeah, I totally agree. And I was actually I was just thinking about it. We kind of mentioned, you know, it'd be really easy for Lindsay to be a hated character. And I think the same thing for Bud. I think that's why they're interesting together is they're so deeply flawed and neither one of them is seeing the truth of their relationship or of the situation they're in until things get really bad. And you, you kind of like it's in those life or death situations. You figure out what's really important. And I think it's nice that they both kind of figure it out at the same time, even if it's at a moment where one or both of their lives are in danger. Exactly. And uh, that, that, I, I, that scene that you're referring to where that, that life or death moment is um, it's intense for both of them because they're both really giving it their all uh, yep. performance wise. And uh, that shows as well. Uh, and it's good for the, it's good for the story. And 
it really, really helps the audience pull in and em- empathize with the characters fully. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes this movie uh, so iconic years later. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the good stuff. Let's talk about Michael Bean. Um, so you brought him <laughs> up on Twitter. So I'm just going to let you go. What did you think of, oh, no. of, his, of his performance as a Lieutenant Coffee here? I thought it was awesome. Even as a bad guy. And, and you know, Michael Bean, he, uh, he has played a Navy SEAL, I think, several times. But he played a Navy SEAL here who was a bad guy against Ed Harris's good guy. And then later on when he was in The Rock. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up because I thought of – I was watching this movie with my wife and I was like, hey, he's playing the guy from The Rock. <laughs> like he's, he's played right. this character before. I mean definitely, you know, definitely not anywhere near as vicious in The Rock as he is in this. But he has that same sparkle, you know, like that same glint behind his eye and that smirk. Yeah, he's a he's a better guy in the rock, and he's he's missing his his lovely mustache. I love that stash that he's got going. It is in the out event. of control. That that mustache does not belong in 1989. I don't know. Like, that is like a 1972 mustache. It is crazy. <laughs> it is beautiful. I couldn't stop looking at it. And uh, from what I read, uh, the studio had pushed for a supporting actor Oscar nomination for being, but it didn't pan out. Hmm. And I think that's a shame because he really did deserve it. I'm not sure who won that year, 1990. Um, but man, he deserved that Oscar nomination for this performance, which is cool because he was a bad guy. Yeah. And you don't see that as much for, for bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think he's played a couple really memorable bad guys. Like look at this role and you look at the role he played in Tombstone. He's a good bad guy, which is really is. interesting because he kind of made his career, I think, you know, starting with, with the original Terminator playing the good guy. So it's interesting. I, I think he's one of those actors, like I've said this about Keanu Reeves in the past, that I don't think Keanu is a bad actor. I think he just is a very limited actor. And I think Michael Behan's probably the same thing. He's very good at these certain type of roles. Um, but I think the good thing about him is he's able to portray that same type of role as either a hero or a villain. Right. And I think that, that he's so good at that, um, that just like, uh, Mary Elizabeth, uh, Master Antonio, I always got to slow it down when I say it, <laughs> um, just like her, he should have, he should have been more famous. He should have been well, more well known. He should have gotten Keanu level fame, Yeah, but it never, it never quite panned out for him. And uh, I know he's still working. He's still acting. And he still he's pops acting. up every once in a while. I'm like, hey, he look does. at you still getting jobs. That's good. <laughs> he was in, he was in Planet Terror just uh, a few years ago too. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he's one of those actors that just like every time I see him, it just kind of makes me happy because I, I was, you know, I was born in the very late seventies, so I kind of grew up in the eighties. So he is. You know, he's one of those guys who always popped up in those movies I loved as a kid. So anytime I see him pop up or I get to rewatch an old movie for this podcast, it's always just like, oh, it gives me like this nice warm feeling to see Michael Bean again. And you're right. I wish he had gotten bigger. Like, no, is he a is he someone who would get nominated for 10 Oscars over his career? No, he's definitely not that type of actor. But he has this kind of natural charisma. If you look at you know, roles like this or roles like he had in another James Cameron movie in Aliens, which I just rewatched. He's just an enjoyable presence to have on screen. And I think that goes throughout his entire filmography. Right. I think he's uh, a Terminator proves it, that he he definitely has leading man material. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved to see him in more stuff. And it's it's a shame that he never quite he never quite 
I, I don't know if it, if he pursued it or if it just didn't work out for him, but he really should have gotten those bigger roles. Yeah. But um, what I appreciate in the abyss is the intensity that he brought to his role, but he did it incrementally. In the very beginning, there's just a little That's bit a of That's a great point. Yeah. There's an undercurrent of, of uh, hatred and ugliness underneath uh, uh, his his skin there. And then alongside that hand tremor that he kept showing, mm-hmm. uh, his, his all of his ugliness just got worse and worse and worse with the, the intensifying effect of that pressure-induced psychosis that he had going. Yep. And I think it constantly, because it's always there from the beginning, like he... It, at best, he's kind of a snarky asshole. Like that is his. That's when he's like when he first shows up. You're kind of like okay, but you know I'm, maybe this guy is okay. And then of course by the end, you're like no, this is you know practically a supervillain, um, right? But it's it's it always makes you wonder like okay, how much of this is the psychosis and how much of this is just him, you know? And you and I love right. that you don't really know. That's that's why I had such a hard time with the the theme of sexism in the workplace because I'm like, well, how much of this is just him being an asshole, and how right. much of this is the psychosis, and how much of this is pure unadulterated sexism? Right, and it's probably a little bit of here, a little bit of there. Like <laughs> that that was my conclusion. That's I, I threw my hands up and said, it's got to be a little bit of everything. Right. All right. So let's let's talk about the writing here. So I mentioned earlier, there's like all these plots, you know, you have the the submarine plot at the very beginning, which I think is great because it sets up not only mystery, but stakes at the beginning. Like we don't know if this creature out there, I mean, at this point, we don't know if it's really a creature and we don't know if it wants to create harm or if it's just this accidental thing that happens. Um, So you have that plot and then you have the plot of this kind of, you know, underwater alien for lack of a better term and then we have this kind of nuclear plot as well and i think i i started wondering like i wonder how many edits this script went through because it's really <laughs> well balanced and i could really see this going wrong at about 10 different points in this movie but we talked about james cameron level james cameron's level of control and maybe that's why it never really goes off the rails i think that the fact that he's a bit of a perfectionist uh I think you're right. I think there were many, many drafts and edits before you know we got to to what we have now. And I bet you there were probably even rewrites uh, on the set. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he, I think that Cameron is very confident in his audience. I think that he thinks that we are capable uh, of of balancing all of these things and being able to invest a little bit of empathy into each one, each plot. Uh, subplot of me. And I, I like that he doesn't, he doesn't spoon feed the audience. He can give us hints. He can give us little bits and pieces and tastes here and there, but he doesn't, he doesn't do what, what Avatar did. He doesn't. Uh, <laughs> there's no unobtainium. There's, there's right. nothing like that. Yeah. He doesn't hit us over the head <laughs> with a hammer right here in, in the abyss. It's, it's saying, I know you're not stupid. And right. so we're going to we're going to play around with this story a little bit and just give you some tastes and teases here and there. Right. And there's definitely some moments where the movie like sits down the audience and explains things to them. But I think it's really well woven into the story. Like we do have that moment very early on where they're talking about this pressure induced psychosis. But there are people mm-hmm. in the room who don't know what that is. So it actually makes sense. It's not like, OK, 
let's take a pause and talk to the audience for a second. And this is what it is. I still think that stuff really works, even though as a viewer, as someone who's watched hundreds upon hundreds of movies, you do have this moment where you step back and go like, oh, you're explaining some of the audience right now. But I think it still works within the film. Right. I can appreciate when the exposition feels natural within right. the scene. I don't mind if I catch the exposition, but I, right. I, I appreciate when it's uh, when it makes sense within the, the story. Totally. Um, the, the other thing um, I wanted to bring up is the kind of blue collar nature of this movie. Like I, I just talked about this in our in our last episode about, you know, Chris Pratt's debatably dumb comment about you know, the working class not not being shown in films. And it got me kind of thinking about this as I was watching the movie, because uh, I think one of the best uh, kind of renditions of seeing the working class in films is Ridley Scott's Alien. I think they do a great job there. And this had little moments where you actually felt that. But the movie that I kept thinking of, and to me, it's a much lesser movie than The Abyss, is Armageddon. Like you have these kind of working class heroes that are, you know, sprung into action by some governmental force uh, and trying to kind of maintain their own agency uh, during this process. And I just kept thinking, like, did Michael Bay watch this movie in 1989 and really, <laughs> really latch on to it? Because I think there's a lot less silliness here. But if you look at just the bare, bo- bare bones plot, it's a little similar. It is. And this movie could have just as easily been scientists under under the water. Right. But he made the conscious decision to to make these blue collar workers and... Um, I think just like you you touched on with Alien and with uh, how even The Thing, and I know that those were mostly scientists in, in John Carpenter's The Thing, the fact that they were uh, these, these sort of blue-collar, working-class heroes uh, made it so much more relatable. Yeah, and especially Kurt Russell's character in that movie. Like, there's no science. <laughs> there's no science right. in him. Like, and he is kind right. of, even though he's not a hero, he is the protagonist of that story. And I think it makes for for this kind of interesting dichotomy between characters who are, you know, very, very book smart and characters who are very, very, for lack of a better term, very street smart and how they clash and how they work together. And I think you have a little of that here, too. I agree. And uh, it's it's very grounding. And, and that's another way that the, the movie could have gone off the rails by taking those science characters and making them pure exposition doing the the pacific rim thing where the scientist character is just is just there just for pure exposition and um i'm glad that he didn't go that route in the abyss right and you mentioned the scene with the rat drinking the oxygenated water uh earlier and i really like that setup that we end up using that fred harris's character like you see it come in a little bit because why else would you be showing us this technology but i think the movie i I think the length of the movie helps and the kind of the three or four plots going on helps because you kind of forget about that and then it comes up again and you're like oh yeah we have seen this before and this is this is scary this is dangerous but this also gives us a little bit of hope so i like the way they wove that into it too Mm-hmm. There's there's definitely a setup and a, a bit of foreshadowing, and I can appreciate that. Uh, what I liked most about that scene um, with the rat uh, was that it wasn't just uh, a setup, but it, Cameron also used that moment to endear us to one of the minor characters a little bit more, the guy yeah. who owned the rat. He was totally uh, protective of the rat. He was freaking out over yeah. this rat. <laughs> I think even he was though, more scared than the rat was. Like that. right, and even though he was, they 
the guy was explaining to him, hey, don't worry, this rat won't drown. He'll be fine. This is normal. And uh, you hear that that this is normal thing again when you when you see Ed Harris literally drowning. Um, But the 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 rat's owner still freaks out over it. And I think that the audience kind of connects with that in a way later on when Ed Harris is breathing in that oxygenated water and we see him kind of hitching and, and, and convulsing and you're freaking out for him. Right. This poor guy, even though you know that he'll be fine. Yeah. And I think also the other thing that scene accomplishes is showing us the kind of inhumanity of the, of the military guys who have come in. Like if you look at that guy's face while he's doing this to this rat, he's like mildly amused. Like he's not concerned for the safety of this of this animal or for this other human being who's kind of who's very upset about this. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Doesn't matter. Like it doesn't bother him at all. Yeah, he's pretty cold about it. He mm-hmm. kind of he's almost uh, amused by it. And he's he's definitely more fascinated by uh, the the effects of the oxygenated water and it's something that you see in a lot of these these kind of sci-fi movies where a scientist is completely removed emotionally right. and it's just more in all even if it's a bad thing like an alien being or a xenomorph this scientist is completely uh, enamored by these this perfect machine mm-hmm. and James Cameron definitely didn't he he didn't miss that here yeah he's done that a couple times in his movies i think that seems to be a theme for James Cameron in his <laughs> films Um, The other thing I wanted to bring up, and it's like a relative weakness of the script for me, I found myself, you know, in watching this with with new eyes, a little annoyed at how um, how Lindsay's character becomes a little bit of a damsel in distress. And then we give all the hero moments to Ed Harris's character. How did you feel about that? I thought, okay, so I was thinking the same thing as you when I was watching that. And I thought maybe I'm just being kind of a, a feminazi there. Maybe <laughs> maybe this is a bias, you know, that I'm, I'm seeing. But uh, I'm glad that you brought it up because um, she does, in a sense, she does sacrifice herself when she, when she gives him the, uh, the oxygen uh, apparatus mm-hmm. and uh, says, you know, go ahead and, and let me drown. But yes, the focus emotionally is on Ed Harris and his struggle and his reaction to her, to losing her. But when the tables are turned and when Ed Harris is is you know, in the abyss and it turns out that he kind of sacrifices himself. He knew that this was a one-way ticket <laughs> and he, uh, he, he stays down there. You don't get to focus so much on on Lindsay's reaction as much as Ed Harris's when he's resuscitating her. Right. And I, I do feel that in a sense that her character kind of got robbed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I don't think it's it's done in such a bad way that it's offensive, but it does m- take make you take a pause and kind of question like, oh, why why do we make this choice? But one reason I like it is that it, it in some ways, when you look back at the beginning of the movie, makes makes you realize kind of what how much of a jerk Ed Harris is being, and he really needs to kind of make up for some of that. And I think he does in that in that sequence where they're communicating via the kind of the the pad, and she's just getting his his written messages, and he's kind of realizing you know kind of mistakes he's made. And there's a really beautiful moment in there where he realizes that he's not going to make it back and she's kind of screaming at him, telling him like, you know, the gauge could be wrong. Please come back. And he just kind of sits down and appreciates where he is. And there's this little like 
rueful smile on his face where he kind of realizes what he could have had and what he's losing, but that he needs to kind of give in to the situation that, that he's currently in. And I love that moment from Ed Harris. Right. And, and that, that kind of makes me step back and think he is the starring character of the movie. And, and, and the focus is supposed to be on him largely. Uh, you didn't really get a sense in the beginning of uh, Lindsay's flip-flopping over her feelings for him, but you definitely got to see uh, Cameron put in a specific scene where he takes off his wedding ring and throws it in the toilet and then... Uh, then goes back and gets it. A yeah. second later, he reaches in and gets it, his hands all blue and gross. And uh, the fact that Lindsay didn't get that kind of scene in the beginning isn't really an offense or an affront to Lindsay's character. It's just because this movie is kind of a vehicle for Virgil, for Bud. Right. And I also kind of think she's, I would argue that she is more aware of what she's feeling and why she's feeling it than Bud is. I think Bud has a, has a lot of things to work out. And you could really see in that scene, you mentioned that resuscitation scene, you know, which gets a little weird and violent. <laughs> because of the passion involved. Um, and it's interesting that in order to kind of bring her back to life, there's physical violence and there's these like compliments hidden in insults going on, you know, like how yeah. dare you give up on me? Like you've never given up on a thing in your life and is slapping her around. And I'm like, Oh, and it's very jarring in 2017, probably a little bit less so in 1989. Yeah. And I think he's really hitting her too, isn't he? I mean, like not, it's, not punching her. Yeah, like he's, but it's certainly like he's putting some force. Some <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not it a light slap at all. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that that was done in one take, but I'm, oh. I'm betting it's not because it's James Cameron. Yeah, movie. I hope for Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's sake that was one, maybe two takes, because he was definitely not holding back. Because as you mentioned, Ed Harris is that type of kind of passionate performer and it really, really comes through. But I think it comes through in a good way for the film. That scene, even if I have misgivings about it emotionally, that scene works 100%. It does. That's one of my favorite scenes. One of the two. Nice. So let's talk about the production value before we jump to favorite scenes. Um, so how do you feel like this movie stands up as far as, I mean, we talked about the underwater sequences, but what about like the hurricane effects and the crane coming down and the kind of the crash on the ocean floor? How does that stuff hold up for you? I think it works really well. Uh, now, I hadn't seen this movie in, I, I want to say, almost a decade or so uh, before this, before <laughs> last night. And... Um, I I was still taken aback by how well the, the effects still work. Um, particularly, one thing that I really loved was the mini-subs when they were exploring the sunken nuclear mm -hmm. sub. And you can see the actors moving around inside. And um, That's a really I great point, actually, because it would be really easy to just do you know, fade outs where you don't see the people inside. You just see the ships kind of moving around, but you actually see their heads moving back and forth and their facial expressions. There's a lot in there. Right. He could, he had the technology. He could have, he could have just CGI'd it all, but he didn't do it. And instead what did, I went and looked it up and what they did was they used models for the mini subs and then inserted little projection screens inside each model that they suspended on wires and then they projected the actor's image inside. And I thought that wow. that was just amazing that they did that in a sense, it's kind of sort of a, a practical effect compared to what we do now for that kind of scene. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point. 
I also like the crash as a as a narrative thing. I think it really works because you have to have some way of cutting these people off from any amount of help. And the, the hurricane does some of that. But once the the crane comes crashing down and everything kind of goes to shit, like these people really need to kind of step it up on their own and not depend on these people that they're working with. So I think it's a really great for the narrative structure too. Right, and that was jarring too. They he made no no effort to sugarcoat it for you or ease you right. into it. That crane fell hard and then the crane fell over. And then that, that, that Heather to the rig just started slowly, you know, uh, falling. And then you, you barely see it anymore because it's falling so fast and the, the dust is kick, kicking up and everybody, not just the, the characters in the film, but everybody in the audience has that, Oh shit moment yeah. as you see it starting to fall. And then you know that the film has moved into a, in a whole new realm from here. Right. I think that's actually one of my favorite special effects moments of the film is when these things hit the ocean floor and the dust kind of puffs up and hides what's there. And I think also it's really smart. Uh, and it's also smart to have this whole bit underwater because it hides a lot <laughs> because it's mm. you know mostly dark and there's a lot of things moving around and it's easy to hide things. And of course, I think the most memorable special effect of the film is you have this, you know, what we find out maybe is not necessarily the alien creature, but some automated thing. It is sent down to make contact with them where it kind of recreates Lindsay's face and they, they make actual first contact. Cause I think as I was sitting down to watch this, that was the only thing I remembered about this movie was that moment like that from a special effects standpoint, 1989, like you do not get any better than that. And I think it still works now. It does definitely, and uh, I think that's also a testament to to industrial like magic that, yeah. that they were able to achieve that at that time, and so many films uh, uh, tried to emulate that afterwards. And unless it was ILM that was doing it, it kind of failed. Right. And so um, I think that those those visual effects uh, still stand up, and I think considering that the film didn't do as well as it should have. Uh, as far as the box office numbers goes, uh, I think that's a shame because the the value was so good. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes from The Abyss? Okay. So we had already touched on it a little bit uh, when uh, Lindsay purposely drowns and Virgil has to carry her to the surface to resuscitate her. I love this scene because there is not a bad actor in the bunch for this yeah. entire scene. Even the people in the background that don't say a word are, are giving it their all uh, expressively. And I think it's also where Ed Harris shines. And and I, I guess it's where Lindsay shines, too, because even as a, a technically dead body, uh, she's she's passively uh, egging on Ed Harris's performance. And I love that scene because when he's smacking her around, you, you can tell he really hits her. Yeah. And uh, he's shaking her, his voice breaks. And when the other character, the other woman aboard, uh, Lisa One Night Standing, the one with the cowboy hat, mm -hmm. she's uh, she's trying to kind of keep everything cool. But she's she's in the end, she's listening to to Bud because he's the boss. And she's as she's trying to clear everybody and use those uh, defibrillator pads, she progressively gets more and more emotional every time she says clear. And all she's saying is the word clear yeah. every time. And her voice starts to break and you can see the, the consternation in her eyebrows. 
even though she wasn't a main character in the the main player in that scene, uh, she stepped up her game. And I think that that intensity channeled through everybody in the scene. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, obviously, the two the two main characters in that scene are phenomenal. Uh, it's probably, you know, it's probably Ed Harris's best moment in the film. And I think so much of his other his other moments in the film lead to that. Like you have that complete arc. So that scene works. But it would be really easy for any of these other actors who are on the periphery to pull focus. And there's this weird balance where you can either not give enough to a scene as a peripheral character or give a little bit too much and draw from who we should be looking at. But I think everyone like hits just the right note in that sequence. There's even a couple of the male characters in that sequence who at the start are trying to kind of tell Bud, like, kind of like, it's over, this is not going to work. And then when they realize, like, he's not going to stop, they back off and they're still there for him, but silently. Like, they're not going to get in the way. They're just going to let him work through this however it's going to end up. Right. And they, um, they don't, they don't chew the scenery, but they don't, uh, nor do they, fade away in the background. Right. I, I like, I like that everybody, um, the focus was where it needed to be in that scene. Yeah. And there, there were no scene stealers. I don't like you, like you were saying. Yeah. I, I really like that part. Yeah. I think another one of my favorite moments in the movie, there's, there's kind of a hand to hand combat scene between Michael Bean and Ed Harris, um, which really works by the way, but the lead up to that, to that fight, it's one of my favorite moments of this movie, and it's so much – there's so much nonverbal acting going on, like – and there's also some really great sound production stuff too. You see these cha- – you hear these chains clinking back and forth as, oh, my, yeah. as Michael Bean is just giving that dead-eyed, terrifying stare ahead. And you have no idea what he's thinking, but you know he is losing it, you know, of course, a lot due to this, um, this pressure-induced psychosis. And then you get these moments of – Ed Harris trying to kind of sneak up on him and other characters realizing this is what he's going to do, which just kind of increases the fear and anxiety for us. And that moment really works for me. I mean, that works in a vacuum. Like you could take away the other two and a half to three hours of this movie, depending on which version you watched and just watch that sequence. And it's genuinely scary. It's almost like a horror movie sequence more than science fiction. It is that the tension is ratcheted up just bit by bit by bit. And I think the sound design plays really well into that scene, um, like you were talking about with the chains. But um, as Ed Harris is getting out of the water, you can hear every drop of water being right. moved around, and you're going, "Man, that's too loud! That's too loud! You, he's going to hear you." Yep. Even though this guy is is the cheese is sliding off his cracker and he's staring at <laughs> his face, you you can tell he he he'll hear him. He will hear him if he's yep. too loud. And so, um, yeah. As and then Cameron uses that POV uh, shot where he's kind of sneaking up on Michael Bean. And you think he's going to get, he's going to get that gun. He's going to tear it away from him. It's all going to work out. But then he turns at the last second and you, you have another one of those, Oh shit moments. And then, yeah, I think you're right. That, that, that lead up to the fight is just as good as the fight itself. Yeah. So you mentioned you had two favorite scenes. What was the other one you wanted to bring up? Oh, okay. So the second scene is when Virgil jumps into the abyss to disarm the nuclear warhead. Um, for me personally, this is where the movie veers into straight horror for me because this is my personal nightmare. That whole deep sea, uh, uh, 
deep sea, deep space. I still haven't watched Gravity, by uh, the way. I okay, still won't watch so that movie. before you continue, this is like the running joke in my house is so I saw Gravity and I walked out of it and I told my wife, um, before now I didn't know that I had a fear of deep space, but here we are. I have it now. Thanks. Thanks, Gravity. So that movie, especially if you see it like on a big screen and IMAX and 3D, is, is the, the first half hour of that movie is is hell. It's like terrifying. So I totally get what you're talking about with Deep Sea and Deep Space. Exactly. There's no way. And, and like movies like Open Water, that is my literal nightmare. Nope, I can't. Nope. I can't. I'm just going to drown. Thanks. I'm just I'm good. <laughs> So you can imagine the first time I'm watching the right. abyss, and he just he just pops right off of the edge there, and and then as he's falling, hit the um the the light that he has it it implodes kind uh, nope, of. Nope, nope. Yeah, he starts to tumble where he can't see anything at all, and yeah, that that just it kills me every time. And then when he does make it to the bottom, he does his thing with the wires, bada bing, bada boom. He snips the right wire. He's done. But then when and you think, okay, all right, it's gonna be okay again. And then as Lindsay asks him, okay, how much oxygen do you have left? Check the gauge. He says five minutes. And instead of saying anything, you know, through the, through the, the, the radio, the whole thing is typed on his little pit boy Casio calculator uh, (laughs) thing. He's got going on his wrist. And I love that that communication was her voice to, to his, his typing, his words. And even though, you could only see what he had typed. You could you could feel the emotion in every word. Going to stay a while. Don't cry, baby. Knew this was a one way ticket. Yeah. And then he finally says the three words: "Love you, wife." Yeah. And when he says that, I break down like a little baby every time. So last night I, I wrote about it on Twitter. I'm ugly <laughs> crying in front of my computer, uh, tea dribbling everywhere just because of those three words. Even though I've seen that scene several times. And it's really impressive and really tells you how well the arc of the, these characters' relationships work. Because if you just, again, we talked about looking at scenes in a vacuum and it's like, you know, her kind of freaking out as she should be and him typing words and her reading them. Like that shouldn't work. <laughs> that shouldn't work emotionally when you have one character speaking and one character not speaking. But it absolutely works here because of all the buildup. Right. It should be lopsided. Right. But for some reason, it, it, it clicks. It works really well and it, it hits you hard. At least it hit me hard. Maybe it was because I was already emotional because of the tumble into the abyss. But right. <laughs> the worst has already it, happened. Now, right. How do we go from here. Um, OK, so now we're going to talk about the theme a little bit. And of course, we have to remember that we are looking this at this with 2017 eyes and not, not 1989. But I still think it's fair to look at kind of the sexism in the workplace that comes in. Like you brought up. Uh, Michael Bean's character and not being sure how much was him and how much was the psychosis. But if you look at like what we would call like benevolent sexism, like supposed harmless sexism, like constantly through this movie, she's called a little lady. They say things mm-hmm. like you're making the women nervous. She's called baby. Uh, there's there's a scene with Michael Bean and the and taping her mouth shut and saying, like, I've been wanting to do this uh, since we first met. And they call her hysterical. Like throughout this entire movie, she is constantly kind of derided with this with these kind of sexist attitudes. And I was really noticing it and something that I really didn't pick up pick up on a lot on first watch. Right. There are several microaggressions throughout the, the story. And the first time she even showed up on screen, she's referred to, not to her face, as the queen bitch of the universe. Right. And it, it immediately dispels any notion that her reputation is just the result of her private life with Virgil. This is an external thing as well. Um, 
within minutes, it becomes clear that she's confident Mm -hmm. and she's competent in her abilities. And immediately there's tension between her and Michael Biehn's character. When she says she doesn't like her married name, he offers to call her sir. And um, that was one of the things that like I, I viscerally got angry for her. Like, how dare you? asshole right. i mean your mustache your mustache doesn't excuse that it, <laughs> and I it, mean, it it's something a that, lot but not that <laughs> right and it's it's one of those things where if a woman is capable and confident then a guy who's unconfident in his own masculinity will masculinize her by calling her manly or sir and um even though she's qualified to advise the seals on the best possible conditions to complete their own mission he talks over her he shuts her down and like you were saying little lady baby all that stuff um but i noticed that the sexism isn't among the crew itself as much it's mostly among the hypermasculine seals right yeah absolutely with the exception of virgil sometimes <laughs> yeah I was wondering what you thought about this moment later in the film where she kind of makes a joke about being a cast iron bitch. Like she talks about kind of how much effort and planning it takes to be like this. What do you think about women who are working in these hyper masculinized uh, workplaces, for lack of a better term, and kind of taking the power of that and making it into a joke? Do you feel like that is productive? Is that something you've ever had experience with? What was your reaction to that? Um, The one thing that I kind of get annoyed with in a lot of movies is where if a woman is strong or powerful or able to hold her own with the boys, it's um, there has to be some kind of excuse made for it. Mm -hmm. Like I grew up with five brothers or my father taught me how to fight when I was little. She can't just be a a cast iron bitch. She can't just be that. Mm -hmm. There has to be some kind of underlying reason or excuse for it. And um, I, I kind of, I'm I'm a little bit bothered by that, and I'd, I'd like to see that changed to where um, there's no excuse needed for it, just as there's no excuse needed for a man who's a cast iron bitch. You know. So are you telling me that like women can be strong without a man being the reason for it? Is that is that what you're? I know. Weird. What a, what a, what a- yeah, novel, right? <laughs> totally novel. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's not it's something that as soon as you said it, I reacted very strongly. You're like, oh yeah, we do see that constantly. That I I was raised with a bunch of guys. This is why I'm like this, this is why I'm brash. And there are many women I have met who had no brothers and some who had, you know, maybe no father figure or a father figure who wasn't there all the time who are still brash and are still smart and intelligent and strong. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be because of a guy. It can be because that's your personality and that's been your experience. So I'd like to see that change too. Right. We need more furiosas. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Could not agree with that more. I don't think you'll get many arguments on we need more furiosas. That's, that's pretty, pretty safe. All right. So I think that covers the theme. I think that covers the movie. I'm, it made me really happy. I got a chance to rewatch this. This was actually my wife's idea because I could not come up with anything uh, to do for Alien Covenant because I had already done uh, the first two Aliens movies and I wasn't going to do Alien Resurrection because I, I don't even know if I want to sit through that again. I thought about <laughs> Alien 3, but I think there's there's a lot of movies that you could tie Alien 3 to, so I'm kind of saving that one for the rewatch. So this became an interesting idea of this kind of exploration into the deep, 
sea instead of space. So, of course, we are tying this with Alien Covenant. And I also want to talk about you just had, I, I don't know if you'd call it an article, but it was like a conversation between you and another writer about the Alien <laughs> franchise that was, I think, also on Vague Visages, which was just fucking fantastic. And really, it was great to hear these different these different perspectives on on these four to five movies, depending on how many movies you include in the uh, in the Alien canon, at least five if you're not going to include the AVP movies, which... You probably shouldn't because right. don't don't <laughs> put yourself through that. Uh, but definitely check that out. Um, but uh, what are your feelings, thoughts on the Alien franchise in general and on whether you're excited for Alien Covenant? I'm stoked for Alien Covenant first off. Uh, and what I love about the Alien franchise is that it's super malleable. The yes. nature of the xenomorphs changed throughout the series, of course. You know, sometimes they swim, sometimes they, you know, they're, they're going to have a flying one soon. I swear they will. <laughs> I'm but, down. Um, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> right. But the, the themes very drastically uh they, they, they change depending on who is handling the story. You've got your basic, basic slasher in space with Alien, uh, with 1979's Alien. But then both Alien 3 and Prometheus slowed it way down to dive into our relationships with faith and science and belief. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited to see what concepts will be touched upon in this one, especially considering Ridley Scott's involvement this mm-hmm. time around. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of on the same page as you. I am one of the, I mean, I know you're in this camp too, but I felt like I was one of the few people that as soon as I saw Prometheus, I was still, I was really excited and then like came home to find out that like everyone hated it. And I was like, what? No, what what did you watch? That was great. I really, I loved it. I think you hit on something that's really important for the Alien franchise. If you just look at the first two movies, Alien and Aliens, those two movies could not be any different. Like, if you take out the Xenomorph, they almost have nothing in common. And Ripley, obviously. Um, but I think they still both work. Like, I think I have both them rated as five-star movies. I think they're both incredible films. And they have just enough of this connective tissue to make you care about the franchise. But it doesn't have to be beholden to all these rules. You can still have a good time with this franchise. And you can change things around, and it's still it's still fine. And I thought, like you mentioned, Prometheus does a good job of really taking a look at kind of our internal processes and not focus so much on the action beat. So I'm interested to see where Ridley Scott goes from here. So I also am really, really excited to see Alien Covenant. I'm actually most happy that you're team Prometheus as well. I was coming into this, this, this podcast ready for a fight because I thought you were totally going to trash it like, like everybody else. No, no, we've done an episode of Prometheus. I'm very <laughs> positive on it. My, my only, uh, my only qualm with Prometheus is that, you know, from a hormonal perspective, we have a off-screen sex scene between Idris Elba and Charlize Theron, and how dare you not give us that wonderful moment? <laughs> not deny Scott. us that scene. <laughs> exactly. Two most beautiful people in Hollywood, but like, oh, we'll just, anyway, fade to black. Like, no. <laughs> but other than that, I'm a big supporter and big fan of Prometheus, so nothing to worry about there. Right, so I'm hoping that uh, that we, it looks like, no, I'm just going off of the trailer here, but, because uh, I haven't seen it, but, uh, it looks like we're getting a little bit of the slasher in space, but I think we're also going to be definitely exploring more of that that AI, uh, that our artificial intelligence relationship with with humans and um, with working on behalf of the company, and about how the the humans are the worst monsters of all. They're the bigger threat, right. and I, I think we're going to definitely see that in Alien Covenant. So that's what I'm really excited for. Yeah, and from what I've heard, we get two Michael Fassbenders, so that's really all you need to say. 
to get me into the seats. Like any movie yep. with two fast fenders, I'm I'm good to go. I'm fine. Right. Sign me up. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, so before you take off one more time, uh, tell people where to find your writing, because I really, really I'm a really big fan. Like I'm a, I'm a little I was really excited to do this episode because uh, you are legitimately one of my two or three favorite writers online. And I think more people should see your work and you should get more publicity. So tell them where they can read your stuff. Thank you. Um, okay, so you can find my work at Birth Movies Death, F This Movie, uh, Big Massage, Diabolique Magazine, 52 Weeks of Horror. Um, and all of my work is available on my website, anyarights.com. That's Anya, like Tanya without the T, rights.com. And all of my stuff is up there. Um, links to everything I've, I've written in the past uh, year or so. I've only been writing for a year, actually. And uh, the link is also in my Twitter bio, and that's where you'll you'll likely find me. I'm always on Twitter. Uh, at Bookish Plinko is my uh, Twitter handle. Wouldn't you prefer a maiden fair? All right, thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you'd like to get more involved with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like War Machine vs. Warhorse and the True Romance Film Podcast. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. But if you really want to help us out, go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can actually donate to the show on a per-episode basis and get some really cool rewards while supporting an independent podcast. So the next time you hear us, Chris Maynard and I will be doing a review of new release Alien Covenant to tie in with The Abyss. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. But I am not a maiden <laughs> and you, and you change, <laughs> that was my toddler, sorry. It's okay. <laughs>